Throughout the Trump era, the 45th president used one tactic over and over again to try and get what he wanted. Bullying. Sometimes it came in the form of wanton cruelty, cruelty and bigotry directed toward everyone from war heroes to disabled reporters to judges of Mexican heritage. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured. You got to see this guy. Oh, I don't know what I said. Oh, I don't remember. We're building a wall. He's a Mexican. We're building a wall between here and Mexico. Sometimes it came in the form of hostile exchanges with the press. You know you're a fake. You know that. That's okay. I know you're not thinking. You never do. I'm sorry? No, go ahead. You are a rude, terrible person. Sometimes Trump recruited other people to aid in the bullying, like encouraging crowds to beat up protesters or getting Fox News to pressure Republican senators to oppose his impeachment. From the day he entered the presidential race to his final days in office trying to reverse the results of the 2020 election, Trump thought he could get what he wanted by pressuring and intimidating the people around him, even if it meant tearing apart American democracy. And now his lawyers have been forced to try and defend that tactic in his January 6th criminal case in Washington, D.C. Two weeks ago, Trump's lawyers tried to argue that Trump should be, quote, absolutely immune from prosecution because all his false public statements about voter fraud in the aftermath of the 2020 election, that all of those statements were actually part of his official duties as president. Their argument was grandiose and maybe just a little unhinged. Here's an excerpt. The tradition of presidents making public statements on matters of national concern encompasses some of the most historic presidential actions in American history, including George Washington's farewell address and Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg address. Last night, special counsel Jack Smith's team offered a fairly blistering response. In staking his claim, Trump purports to draw a parallel between his fraudulent efforts to overturn the results of an election that he lost and the likes of Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address and George Washington's Farewell Address. These things are not alike. So that's Jack Smith making it crystal clear, in case it wasn't already clear to just about everybody, that one of these things is not like the others. It seems, as we sit here on October 20th, 2023, that Trump's intimidation tactics are failing on several fronts right now. Today in the Georgia conspiracy case, a third co-defendant, Kenneth Chesbrough, has now defied Trump by taking a plea deal from prosecutors, which is seriously problematic for Trump and which we will have a lot more on later this hour. But the place where Trump's legacy, the legacy of bullying, is facing its most humiliating defeat right now is in Congress. For years, Donald Trump's protege in bluster and intimidation has been Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. Trump even awarded Jim Jordan the Presidential Medal of Freedom for Jordan's service as Trump's defender in Congress and an avatar of Trump's rage. So we are clear here. This award is typically reserved for icons, people like Michael Jordan and Maya Angelou. And Jim Jordan has not passed a single bill in his entire congressional career. Now, Trump endorsed Jordan in his bid for Speaker of the House 
And the campaign to make Jim Jordan Speaker of the House has been full of bullying and intimidation. Republicans who opposed Jordan received threatening emails from a Fox News host pressuring them to support Jim Jordan. Multiple Republicans and their spouses received death threats from Trump Jordan supporters. One member of Congress even got evicted from his own office in his home district. And yet none of it has worked. None of it. Instead, all week, we have watched Jim Jordan slowly bleed support in his bid for speaker. That all culminated in today's third floor vote, which saw Mr. Jordan receive the fewest votes of any speaker candidate since the House became a 435 member body in the year 1929. And man, from there, it only got worse. Republicans then met behind closed doors and voted to officially unnominate Jim Jordan to depose him as their nominee. In today's public speaker vote on the House floor, 25 Republicans broke with their party to oppose Jim Jordan. But behind closed doors, Jim Jordan got 86 votes, which is less than half of the Republican conference. 112 Republicans voted by secret ballot to reject Jim Jordan as their nominee. I told the conference it was an honor to be their um, speaker-designee, but I felt it was important that we all, we all know, get an answer to the question if they wanted me to continue in that, um, in that role. And so we put the question to them. They made a different decision. The, the most popular Republican in the United States Congress was just knifed by a secret ballot in a private meeting in the basement of the Capitol. It's as swampy as swamp gets. And Jim Jordan deserved better than that. Did he, though? Jim Jordan's loss is a win for opponents of Trump-style threats and intimidation, but it is definitely not a sign that the Republican Party has its act together. In In fact, it is quite the opposite. Republicans are now going back to square one. They have no one to replace Jim Jordan. Instead, almost a dozen candidates are actively considering running for that position. It is literally open season in the House. Having gone home for the weekend, I mean, hey, why not? Republicans plan to hold yet another candidate forum behind closed doors next week. The Republican Party is headless, and even its de facto leader is losing his edge. Joining me now are Charlie Dent, former Republican congressman from Pennsylvania and executive director and vice president of the Aspen Institute Congressional Program, and Tim Miller, MSNBC political analyst and writer at large, with the bulwark. Thank you guys both for being here. Charlie, I would love to know, as someone who served in Congress, how Jim Jordan and his allies made such a catastrophic misjudgment of of his fellow party members' disdain for him. Well, it shouldn't be any surprise. I, I served with Jim Jordan. I know him on a personal level. We were friendly, but politically we were miles apart. And the, the problem is, you know, Jim, Jim Jordan, he came in there really to tear things down. He really wasn't a bridge builder. Most people who ascend to the to leadership positions in the House Republican Conference are out there working with members, trying to help them as best they can. Uh, and, you know, Jordan, that, that was never his style. Uh, and so it should be no surprise to anybody that he was taken down, not by, you know, fringe elements of the party. But I would argue institutionalists, pragmatists, largely members of the House Appropriations Committee who for years had to endure with you know, Jim Jordan's attempts to blow up their spending bills. And these are the people who wanted to govern responsibly and do the nation's work. And they they paid him back these last few days uh, because they said enough. They, they said they'll, they'll only go so far, but they won't do that. 
Uh, and so I am not at all surprised that Jim Jordan didn't have that goodwill within the conference. Hey, behind closed doors, what, the number of people who opposed him went up by four, fourfold? Well, you know, there's a lot of courage in a secret ballot. So I'm not at all surprised by the outcome. Yeah, the, the, the closed door vote, Tim, tells you all you need to know. Uh, having said that, you know, it does look like the campaign of fear and intimidation did, did not work this time around. And I, w- I wonder if you extrapolate any, any further meaning from that. Well, I think that there is, you know, it's a two-sided coin, right? On the one hand, it's good that Jim Jordan went down. The bullying didn't work. You know, Don Bacon didn't fold because his wife got death threats. And thank goodness for that. Um, I think that there, it shows that there's a limit to these kinds of threats. Um, and, and that, you know, maybe that some in the Republican Party aren't as, aren't as spineless as they might have seemed during the Trump years. So I think all of that is good news and good progress within the Republican conference. On the other hand, going back to the secret ballot, uh, the bullying kind of worked because only 20, some, some uh, 20, 25 people voted against Jim Jordan with their name next to it. But over 100 people voted against him or abstained in the private ballot. So that le- uh, leads you to believe that there are a lot of people out there that didn't want to vote for him. But, you know, maybe maybe they weren't intimidated by the bullying per se. Maybe that was one part of it. But I, I think one thing that they were worried about is the voters, uh, their own voters and what their response would be. And I think that is the key element here. I think Donald Trump, you know, was able to weaponize his own voters, his own base voters against these politicians and intimidate them, you know, in some ways by fear from fear of primaries, but in other ways from fear of physical violence. Um, I don't know that Jim Jordan has the hold over the voters that Donald Trump does. So I don't think that this means that, you know, we're out of the woods on this front. Um, but I, I do think it was an encouraging day. Yeah, Tim, to just follow up on that, it feels like this, I, I am certainly not proposing that the age of intimidation is over. But I would suggest to you that the person who does it most effectively is Donald Trump. And everyone else sure tries, Jim Jordan included, and maybe even some of the candidates for the Republican presidential nomination. But it's really Trump's thing. And he deploys it to a degree of efficacy that no one else can seem to to replicate. He does. And he didn't really seem to have his heart in this one. You know, uh, maybe we're in a different place if Trump was really campaigning for Jordan or or up on the hill the last few days. Instead, he's been in the courtroom and on the golf course, it seems like. So, you know, he endorsed Jordan, but he didn't seem to put a lot of oomph behind it. And and Trump, you know, this has been true ever since 2015. Right. I, I, I remember being on cable and discussing Trump, you know, telling the crowd to knock the hell out of them, uh, you know, when it was re- with regards to the protesters at his events. And that shocked people. And that was a that was a sea change in acceptable rhetoric in, in, in our political discourse eight years ago. And he has been honing that skill ever since, obviously culminating January 6th. But I, I expect, you know, if he's going to be the nominee, which it looks like he is, that we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming year. Um, Charlie, let me ask you about what the future is for House Republicans. Just from the outside, it, 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 there the party is in such profound disarray. I think we have eleven people considering running uh, for speaker. How does this problem get solved among Republicans only? Are Democrats going to have to be involved in the solution here, or do you think the party can really actually solve this problem on its own? Well, the the House Republican Conference is deeply fractured. Uh, I've been saying for some time now that Hakeem Jeffries is going to probably have to come in and help solve this problem. Uh, they need a, a basically a bipartisan solution and a power-sharing arrangement. What I mean by that, they need to run somebody. It could be Patrick McHenry. If they empower him on a temporary basis, I think they could do that with, with, you know, with Demo- some Democratic votes. Uh, they're going to need to do something like that 
uh, elect a, a more pragmatic institutionalist Republican, not an election denier, uh, split the committees evenly, just like the Senate did in the last session where each side had even representation. Republicans control the committees. And if they want to put it to Jordan, maybe give the Democrats chair to Judiciary Committee just for fun. But they could do all kinds of things uh, to uh, share power. Now, that's I think Jeffries, he's had to help them on the debt ceiling and the budget agreement, as well as the recent continuing resolution to fund the government. They're going to need his help again. They might as well just accept that reality, because I don't see any particular member right now getting 217 votes from Republicans only. Maybe Tom Member has a shot. But whoever the Republicans were to elect, is going to have to turn around and cut a deal by November 17th to fund the government. They're going to need Jeffries to help them. And they'll probably suffer, the, that individual will suffer the same fate as did McCarthy. So the, the place is deeply fractured. And this is a real fight. You step back, though. This is a fight between the institutionalists and the Trump populist wing of the party. And I'm glad that we're actually having this fight. This fight should have happened years ago. But it's happening now because enough of them are saying we cannot function like this. That, that populist Trumpian wing is really about you know, tearing things down. It it doesn't have a policy agenda. These institutionalists actually want to govern and they want to they have a they want a governing philosophy based on ideas. And so this fight is a good thing. Charlie, let me just ask you, though, we're putting a lot of stock in the moderates here, right? Pushing back, not electing Jordan. They're getting death threats. I mean, it seems like they've been pushed to their limit. Why have they not yet made entreaties to the Democrats? Why is there not a serious sort of migration of moderate Republicans towards a bipartisan, you know, power sharing agreement with Democrats at this point. What's standing in their way? The House has not done business for two weeks. There's there are urgent matters to attend to. It doesn't look like the problem can be solved internally. What's stopping them from talking to Democrats in a serious fashion and just being done with this problem? Well, I think they realize that if they take this step, that their political careers may be over. But sometimes you have to risk your job in order to save it. And this is one of those times you need to save it, not just for yourself, but but for the good of the country and frankly, the good of the party at the end of the day. So I think that's what the fear is. They know they're going to be savaged and attacked. But by the way, this bullying, uh, you know, where they sick the, you know, the Steve Bannon wing on all these members and they, the echoes, the echo chambers start screaming at them. That was a complete and utter disaster because these leadership fights typically are family fights. They're inside the room type deals. These are not meant to be fought out in public. And I think there's a lot of bitterness and resentful. And, you know, going after, say, Don Bacon, you know, he, he used to wear a star on his shoulder. He was a general in the Air Force. That stuff isn't going to work, especially attack his wife. So I, I think right now that the, the pragmatic members realize that this is their moment. This is a hill to die on. And I think enough of them are going to make those types of overtures. I think Dave Joyce may have already done so. I've not spoken with him. But he's he's been offering this idea of McHenry. He knows he needs Democratic votes. I have a feeling there have been back channel conversations, but nothing public yet. Tim, um, what does it tell you that the people who may save the party and actually elect a speaker who can help govern would be ousted from their positions by the Republicans would be basically killed off by Republicans, figuratively speaking, uh, for doing the right thing here? And it tells us where the energy and where the power is within the party, at least for now, right? I'd love for it to change sometime. But if the MAGA folks can throw these guys overboard for just trying to do the basic amount of governing, make sure we support Israel, I I think that tells you a lot about where the party is. Charlie Dent and Tim Miller, thank you both for joining me tonight. We will see what happens. We have lots more ahead. Amid the chaos and despair, we have some good news for you. 
good news for you tonight about the situation in the Mideast. We're going to speak with a relative of the American hostages who were just released. But first, a third co-defendant has taken a plea deal in Fonnie Willis's Georgia election interference case. And what does it mean for Rudy Giuliani, John Eastman, and yes, Donald Trump? That is next. Stay with us. Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win. Please lower your hand and state your true and correct legal name. Kenneth John Chesbro. How do you plead to count 15 conspiracy to commit filing false documents in indictment number 23SC188947? Guilty. That was Kenneth Chesbro, one of the architects of the fake elector plot to keep Donald Trump in power, pleading guilty in Georgia today to a felony count of conspiracy. Chesbro pleaded guilty after reaching an agreement with prosecutors for which he will avoid prison. And this is a big deal on two fronts. For starters, up until now, no one has been really sure of exactly how to pronounce his last name. And tonight, we finally have clarity. It is Chesbro, not Cheesebro. Secondly, and obviously much more importantly, he is now the second Trump lawyer to plead guilty and the third co-defendant to take a deal. It is a big victory here for Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis. As part of the deal, Chesbro is also required to testify truthfully against the other co-defendants, including Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. And it is clear that prosecutors are going to have a lot of questions on that front. Peppered throughout the indictment are examples of Chesbro scheming with the former New York City mayor. On December 12th of 2020, Chesbro met with the chairman of the Republican Party in Wisconsin, a man named Brian Schwimming. In that meeting, Brian Schimming. In that meeting, they, quote, discussed the December 14th, 2020 meeting of Trump fake elector nominees in that state. Rudy Giuliani joined the meeting by telephone and stated that the media should not be notified that the fake elector meeting was taking place. A day later, on December 13th, 2020, Chesbro sent another email to Giuliani. This one outlined multiple strategies for disrupting and delaying the joint session of Congress on January 6, 2020 the day Congress was to certify the election for Joe Biden. That same day, Chesbro sent an email to a Trump campaign official saying of another fake elector meeting, Giuliani wants to keep this quiet until after all the voting is done. And now Mr. Chesbro will have to tell prosecutors what exactly happened behind those scenes, truthfully and under oath. Joining me now is former DeKalb County DA Gwen Keyes. Gwen, it's great to see you tonight. Fortune has you in New York so we can dig into this explosive development, which seems meaningfully more perilous for Donald Trump than even maybe Sidney Powell or other flipped 
co-defendants because he's implicated in the same plot that Chesborough is. He is. And if you look at the indictment, uh, the former president, Mr. Giuliani, Mr. Eastman are all listed in this count. This is count 15 of the original indictment. If you notice with Ms. Powell, they created a separate accusation to present misdemeanors. This is a felony. It's in uh, the original document. And it has several people named in the count as co-conspirators. And, and the fact that, you know, when you hear Ch- what I heard Chesborough was was pleading out, it was my thoughts immediately turned to Giuliani, Eastman and Trump, which is maybe why outside the court today, Chesborough's lawyer said he didn't snitch against anyone. He went in there. He accepted responsibility, almost telegraphing to potential other co-defendants. I didn't snitch. And yet he's going to be asked to snitch, isn't he? Well, one of the conditions of this plea is that he made a proffer to the district attorney and he has to testify against the other co-defendants. So we'll see what that testimony is. But certainly we've seen uh, D.A. Willis. She's very smart. She's very strategic. I cannot imagine she has allowed him not to provide incriminating evidence against other defendants. If you're Rudy Giuliani's lawyer right now, Rudy Giuliani, who, who has a hard time keeping lawyers, who is in financially dire straits, what would your advice to I mean, is it a foregone conclusion that he's going to be under immense pressure to plead out himself? I think you're going to start to see other defendants start to fall. Remember the progression here. Both Ms. Powell and Mr. Chesborough, they had motions in front of the court. Those motions did not go their way. And then you see within five or so days that they've made the decision that they don't want to risk going to trial and possibly have a felony conviction with jail time. I think you're going to see that with Mr. Giuliani and several of the other defendants as well as their motions start to get decided. Um, it is a big win for Fonnie Willis, as you say, because it is a sort of, well, she has two very important witnesses, but she also doesn't have to lay out her case as she was going to have to, right? If the Chesborough and Powell cases went to trial as they were supposed to imminently, she would have had to reveal a lot of evidence, and now she gets to keep that under the hood, as it were. Not only does she get to keep it under the hood, but now she has two more witness statements yes. that she didn't have at the beginning of, of this week. So, again, she's building a stronger and stronger case against all of the 16 defendants that remain, and we'll see what happens next. How does this dovetail, and I was asking this question yesterday with Sydney, vis-a-vis the Sidney Powell plea agreement, how does this dovetail with Jack Smith's case Because the fake electors plot figure, there's so much cross-pollination in these two criminal indictments. There is. And if you remember with Jack Smith's case, I believe Ms. Powell was co-conspirator number three. Mr. Chesborough was unindicted co-conspirator number five. If you look at both of their pleas, they were warned that pleading to this particular state court indictment might have other implications in the federal case. And so I think we're all waiting to see was were these part of a global deal for either defendant? Have there been discussions with Mr. Smith? We don't know at this point. What would be the telltale signs of a global deal if there was one? Well, I think you would see uh, maybe commitments to testify in the federal case, uh, something along those lines where there's a more direct tie. And I'm just not aware of that so far. As you understand it right now, because we don't have dates for the rest of the defendants in the Georgia case. Do you think Jack Jack Smith's case, which is set for March, is going to go before Fonnie Willis's case? I do think so. Again, we don't have any other dates on the calendar for the state court case. What we do have is the Court of Appeals dealing with the removal issues in December. I think that's going to take some time. We probably will not have a decision that allows the defendants to file their pretrial motions in the state case before the federal case. And I also know that there are certain rules where when you have a federal case like that coming up, the state cases have to yield. So we'll probably see 
Jack Smith's case go before some of the other defendants. When you, when you say that, because I was talking to New York AG Letitia James, and she said, oh, if Jack Smith go, moves forward, I'm paraphrasing here, but effectively, if she if he moves forward with his case, I would I would assume that other uh, DAs would stand down. That didn't happen, but it it it, it sounds like by default. Jack Smith, the federal case, may go ahead of the state case anyway. Do you think that's something Fonnie Willis considered all along? Well, remember, the reason these two defendants were on the calendar is because they filed speedy trial demands. So this, so Ms. Willis was forced to be able to put those cases up or risk losing them altogether. But she said from the beginning she was ready to go. Yep. She called their bluff. Exactly. And now you see just how ready she was. <laughs> that should be the bumper sticker on her car. Just she's, ha- you can see how ready I yeah, am. Right. Fonnie she's Willis. ready. That's yeah, the new tag she line. ready. Oh, Gwen Keys, it's great to see you. Thank you for helping me understand all of this. Thank I appreciate you. it. There is still more to come tonight, including the release of two American Israeli hostages from Hamas captivity in Gaza. What led to their release and are there more freed hostages to come? And inside Gaza, we will hear from those overwhelmed hospitals where doctors are performing surgeries by the light of their cell phones. That is next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Former President Donald Trump is facing 91 indictment charges, yet he remains the Republican frontrunner. On MSNBC's podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, veteran prosecutors Andrew Weissman and Mary McCord break down the biggest legal developments and how they could alter the election. Never had a president who engaged in this kind of conduct who's running for office. He is using the criminal cases for his own campaigning. Search for Prosecuting Donald Trump wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday. The Al-Shifa Hospital in northern Gaza has a maximum capacity of 700 patients per day. But one surgeon there says that right now they are seeing 3,000 patients every day. The medical director of the hospital sent NBC News a devastating account of what it has been like. This is from last night, and I will warn you, some of it is very disturbing. So if you would like to turn away or turn down the volume, now is your chance to do so. Surgery is being performed now in the corridors of the hospitals without anesthesia. Yes, without anesthesia, saving lives of those who, are, who may have hope to live. Others are just left to die, to succumb to their destiny. Hundreds are thrown in, in the corridors of the hospitals in front of the operation rooms and in the emergency rooms on the ground. Majority are children. Doctors Without Borders is warning that as of last night, that hospital, the Al-Shifa Hospital, only had enough fuel to at last 24 hours at most. And Al-Shifa is not alone. Up and down the Gaza Strip, we are getting reports of hospitals 
that are out of supplies. Some are doing surgery with only the lights of doctors' mobile phones. Some don't even have water for medics to wash their hands. The medical coordinator for Doctors Without Border in Gaza said that without fuel and water and medical supplies, thousands of injured people are at risk of dying needless deaths in the next few hours. Meanwhile, more than 200 trucks full of fuel and water and medicine and food are stuck, being denied entry at the Rafah crossing at Gaza's southern border. Today was supposed to be the first day that aid would be let through the crossing on the Egypt-Gaza border. But negotiations between Egypt, Israel, the U.S. and the U.N. about how that aid gets through are still ongoing. The New York Times reports that one of the main sticking points is that Israel wants to be involved in inspections of the trucks, while the U.N. wants those inspectors to be independent. The Times also reports that Israel is also letting fuel in, against letting fuel into Gaza, worried it could be used by Hamas, while the U.N. argues that fuel is needed to power Gaza's hospitals. The U.N. Secretary, Secretary General Antonio Guterres was at the Rafah crossing today to plead his case in person. We are witnessing a paradox. Behind these walls, we have two million people that is suffering enormously, that has no water, no food, no medicine. So these trucks are not just trucks. They are a lifeline. They are the difference between life and death for so many people. We have one more story out of Gaza tonight, and amazingly, it is good news. Two hostages have been freed by Hamas. We will talk to a family member of those hostages coming up next. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. For two weeks. I haven't been sleeping for two weeks. Tonight I'm going to sleep good. I spoke with my daughter earlier today. She sounds very good. She looks very good. She was very happy and she's waiting to come home. I'm going to hug her and kiss her and uh, it's going to be the best day of my life. That was the father of one of the two American-Israeli hostages speaking tonight after his daughter and his ex-wife were freed by their captors, the terrorist group Hamas. This video, shot and released by Hamas's military wing, shows the moment when Judith and Natalie Renan, mother and daughter from Evanston, Illinois, were released to the Red Cross. As you can see, Hamas blurred the faces of its militants. The two freed hostages spoke on the phone this evening with President Biden, who pledged his full support as they recover. About 200 more hostages are thought to be in the hands of Hamas and other militant groups, and 10 Americans are still unaccounted for. Today, while announcing the release of the two Americans, Secretary of State Antony Blinken thanked the government of Qatar for their, quote, very important assistance. The Wall Street Journal is reporting today that another deal involving the U.S., Israel and Qatar would have led to the release of 50 hostages, but fell apart. Joining us now is Martin Flesher, for, former MSN, sorry, former NBC News Middle East correspondent and Tel Aviv bureau chief. Judith and Natalie also happened to be members of Martin's extended family. What a joyous moment this must be uh, for you and your family, Martin. I, I'm I think we're all so happy to have this good news and what is such a dark, dark moment. I know that they're kind of extended family, but as, as, a, as someone related to them and as a journalist, 
What questions do you have for them as they come back to America? I don't have any questions. I'm just thankful they're free, alive, apparently healthy, or he spoke to his daughter. And, you know, obviously full of questions, but they're going to be traumatized. Of course. You know, and uh, I would imagine the first thing they're going to do if I was them, I'd get the heck out of Dodge, go straight to the airport, come home. Because they were tourists in Israel. They were just visiting their grandmother to celebrate her 85th birthday when they were taken. Uh, I do wonder, uh, uh, you know, there is there is concern about there's obviously widespread concern about the hostages and further concern about the ground invasion and how that complicates the picture of releasing them. I, 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 given the fact that this initial, at least one of the initial negotiations seems to have gone well, it's resulted in the release of two people. Do you think this is going to put pressure on Netanyahu to delay the ground invasion for some period of time to let other ongoing negotiations work out? If there are ongoing negotiations, and you mentioned one that fell through, yeah. then yes. But at the same time, that's, that's good for Israel in one sense, because they need much better intelligence before they send their troops into the, in, in, in on the ground. I mean, we know they completely failed in anticipating the, the attack in the first place. So the vaunted Israeli intelligence services must now be looking at the information that they had before and reassessing everything. So the, the extra time probably plays into the hands of the Israeli intelligence services. They don't want to send the troops in before they have as much information as possible. And of course, they're being helped in terms of finding the hostages, at least, by American intelligence agencies, too. So it gives them a bit more time. Do you, were you surprised that this came together? I mean, I think everybody was surprised at the result, but that, that, that hostage negotiations could even be successful at this point. I wasn't surprised because that's what they do. It was pretty clear there would be immediately contacts through Qatar and Egypt, backed by the United States, to make contact with the hostage, with Hamas, and to and to try and come to some kind of deal. And there was talk about that. You know, there was early talk um, a few days ago about a partial release of women and children. For women and children held in Israeli jails, Israel has 30 female security prisoners in its jails and about 120 minors. So you can see that that would be an automatic swap. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's probably what they were talking about. When we say the deal fell through, it may come back to life again. Let's hope so. I do wonder, we were talking with Graham Wood, who's the author of an Atlantic piece that sort of uh, has some reporting in it about the degree to which Hamas was unprepared to take hostages back to Gaza, that they apparently, again, this is reporting from the Atlantic, MSNBC has not verified it, but that apparently Hamas was prepared for a prolonged hostage standoff inside Israel. They did not think they would have hours to spirit away hundreds of hostages across the Gaza border. Um, if that is true, what are your concerns about the this, this situation in which the hostages now find themselves, which is not one that Hamas was necessarily prepared for? Well, we're going to find out slowly but surely when, the, when, when um, Natalie and Judith are being interviewed yes. and they'll tell, tell us what their situation was. But the, you saw that the pictures you showed from Shati Hospital, horrific stuff. Well, the hostages probably are underground, in tunnels, split up into numerous small groups, probably 40, 50 different groups of, uh, of hostages. I'm speculating now. Yeah. But they're not all in one place. They're scattered all over the place. Um, 
horrific, I mean, horrific conditions. It's dark in the tunnels, no doubt. They do have electricity. They have cables. They're very sophisticated tunnels, but they're probably running out of electricity, uh, running out of fuel. So conditions will, will, will be dire, absolutely. And, of course, we also know that, the, that Hamas told their fighters to kill the troublesome hostages and to keep the rest as human shields. So at best, the remaining hostages will be used as human shields. Well, all the more reason to continue any negotiations with great haste. Um, let us not lose sight of the good news, though. Um, our hearts are with your the return of these hostages and hope that that is a signal that more may be on the way. Yeah, enjoy the so. moment. Thank you. Martin Fletcher, thank you again for your time. We have one more story for you this evening. President Biden this week balanced a major crisis abroad with the chaos of a leaderless house right here at home. Jen Palmieri joins me to talk about this insane split-screen America. That is next. We are living in the middle of quite a split-screen moment. On one side, an utterly dysfunctional Republican House caucus unable to do its job. And on the other, a Democratic president making an historic trip to a war zone and delivering a primetime Oval Office address on the Israel-Hamas war. That is in addition to the official White House request today for more than $105 billion in aid for Israel, Ukraine and other national security needs. And here's where those two very different realities intersect. For that aid to be approved, there needs to be a functioning Congress led by a Speaker of the House. Joining me now is my friend and colleague, Jen Palmieri, co-host of The Circus and former White House communications director for President Obama. She is also the co-host of the How to Win in 2024 podcast. She wears a lot of hats, Jen. It's so good to see you, my friend. I actually, I, I'm so eager to hear your thoughts about this insane reality that we live in politically and the dysfunction in the House serving as a contrast to what's happening in the White House. I know the president is focused on the big picture but there is a certain political utility in in highlighting the dysfunction of the Republican Congress right now. Yeah. I mean, there's there's team normal. Like, yep, full stop. Yes. Yes. Alex. Correct. Next question. Uh, yes, there is team normal. I mean, this is how this is how by the staff states it right. There's team normal and then there's team chaos. Yeah. And you used to count on Trump as being team chaos. And now you have I mean, and the Republican. I'm. They can't govern. I mean, they just, they just literally cannot govern. And so while, you know, there's back when I worked for President Clinton, certainly we would get, he would get commander in chief bumps when there was a national security crisis and you would see the country rally around the president. Less so with President Obama. I don't know that President Biden, that you will see that now just because people are so war weary, mm -hmm. you know, after 20 years in Iraq and Afghanistan, that people are, when they see crisis on the world stage, it makes them anxious about, does the U.S. have to get involved? But still, the leadership qualities that Biden is able, they're very good at this. They're very good at driving home the commander-in-chief moments. I think they understand that they don't necessarily last as long as they used to for presidents, but still they're able to like just drive these leadership qualities and the calm, competent, orderly, team normal president versus the chaos that you see with President Trump and then you see on Capitol Hill. Yeah, House. and it redounds to the benefit of all Democrats, too, right? Democrats, yeah, through mean, all of this insanity in the House, have just sat on the sidelines, including in the White House, right, from President Biden down, uh, down on. 
they're not saying anything about it. They're like, call us. We'll pick up the phone. We're ready yes. to talk whenever. Is that the right? Can they yeah, I, maintain I think that, that strategy? I think that uh, Hakeem Jeffries and the Dem leadership team with Catherine Clark and Pete Aguilar, I think they've been very effective at this, that they they establish what their principles are. They're willing to work. They're willing to work in a bipartisan way. Come talk to us. We need a, you know, we need to elect a speaker. Um, and I think that you know, so so people hear that they're willing to be bipartisan, they're willing to work. But in the meantime, they're just driving home the MAGA. You know, they have one. Hakeem Jeffries always says that in the Trump era, simple and repetitive. And yeah. they just talk about extremist MAGA. And you may think Kevin McCarthy's not as extreme as Jim Jordan. Guess what? He voted overturn the election just as Jim Jordan did. So they're constantly driving that message while, you, you know, you see the chaos on the other side. Um, I, I would be remiss if it did not highlight that it has been a very difficult week for the White House in more ways. Like it, it's an I incredibly mean, challenging. Those 36 everything. hours that they went to Israel, that was high stakes. And I felt like they I mean, they came through that with flying colors. Well, Very difficult. Can we talk about the moment, though, that it becomes clear after the uh, bombing of the hospital that, right. you know, the regional partners from the Arab world that President Biden is supposed to be talking to all pull out as the U.S. president is on the way over? Yeah. yeah. That was diplomatic. Basically, as he's boarding Air Force One, I think it's like when it becomes more clear that this is all falling apart. Yeah. Do you how deeply do you think that affected the White House? And do you think that that had was undergirding any of the, I think, sort of changed language that the president adopted in the aftermath of that hospital bombing? Right. Even though we are we are given intelligence, it was not on the part of Hamas. It was on the part it was not on the part of the IDF. It was likely a, a separate jihadist group. But do you think that that changed? change the White House calibration in terms of how to talk about what was happening in Gaza and giving more attention to anti-Muslim sentiment in this country? Well, I think that, you know, one thing that has struck me um, since the beginning of this, you know, since October 7th, is how the president has approached this with no ambivalence. Mm -hmm. I mean, he has, I mean, you know, and there are there are some Americans that have a lot of concerns about that, but he has, he has, he dove in headfirst, fully owning this, him and Tony Blinken, they fully own the United States role leading and leading in a really precarious situation. Yeah. Um, but I think that because he has been so clear in his own mind and in, in his communication with how he was approaching this, that they didn't have to think very hard about do we go or do we not go? They knew our, our number one mission is to show solidarity with Israel. And if we do that, if we show up, that's going to give him the capital with the Israelis both with the leadership and with the Israeli people, to also say, as he did, which I thought was so effective, on his way back to the United States, he went to the back of the plane to talk to the press. You know how the press loved that, and he never does that. Um, and he, We do. <laughs> the press loved that. I was like, do more of it. He did that on the record. He actually went back and talked to them on the record, on camera. Um, and he said, if there are, you know, you know we're going to look at Palestinian civilians and we're going to hold Israel accountable. If he had not gone and been and so, you know, and, and so embraced, figuratively, literally, the uh, Israeli people, he would not have had the standing to do that. But I think that this clear, you know, and I know he. Do you, wait, do you think that that's that was baked into the calculation? Yeah, definitely. definitely. We're going to stand shoulder to shoulder. So we have the capital to say, yes, do not cause a human, a further humanitarian catastrophe. And then he just says he has a lot of but Netanyahu, not as pop, not that popular with his people right now. Uh, Joe Biden is very popular with the Israeli people, and it does give him the standing to do this. But you just see when you see Biden moving with such certitude, so 
sure-footed. Also, just the stamina he shows, you know, dealing with his age, right, and going over there and coming back and doing an Oval Office address the next night. But then also just uh, this is, you know, that is like strong leader, all caps. Yeah. Kind of. Underscore, underlined, italicized. And that is, that is, you know, that's always been Trump's biggest strength. So that, these days are, you know, this is going to be very difficult and we don't know how it's going to end up, but pocketing important leadership moments as, you know, as they can. Well, the week that was, my friend, what an extraordinary moment for all of us and the leadership in this country. Jennifer Palmieri, thank you for your time, your thoughts, your friendship. Um, We will watch you on the circus on Sunday night. That is this show for tonight. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.